Welcome to Twice Blessed, a Yeshiva University Strauss Center podcast exploring Torah and Western thought. I'm your host, Shana Trapito, and this season we're examining Shakespeare and the Hebrew Bible. It is a pleasure to welcome Dr. Susan Weissman, Chair of Judaic Studies and Associate Professor at Lander College for Women, a division of Turo College, where she shares her gift for accessing the meaning of texts and objects by teaching fascinating and challenging courses such as medieval and modern biblical exegesis and advanced topics in tabernacles and vessels. She's also a Yeshiva University alum who attended Stern College and earned her PhD at Revel, where she specialized in medieval Jewish history. In July 2020, she published Final Judgment in the Dead in Medieval Jewish Thought, a deeply researched book on death and the afterlife in medieval Europe that shows how beliefs and rituals of the period were cross-culturally shared by neighbors, Jews and Christians alike. And although it weighs in at over 400 pages, I couldn't put it down. At the core of her study are numerous ghost tales referred to in Sefer Hasidim, a religious ethical work by an elitist group of 12th and 13th century Jewish-German pietists, which she unpacks with critical care and insight. Throughout her impressive study, Dr. Weissman shows how a flood of stories involving the dead and German Christian beliefs, customs, and fears relating to the dead and the afterlife in the High Middle Ages seeped into the doctrinal beliefs and practices of a medieval Jewish enclave. Last year, we invited Dr. Weissman to deliver a guest lecture to the Strauss scholars studying Shakespeare and the Hebrew Bible, and today I have the privilege of speaking with her about Hamlet, which is not only Shakespeare's most famous play, but perhaps the most theologically charged ghost story of all time that traces its roots back to the period of Dr. Weissman's expertise. Dr. Weissman, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. I really feel twice blessed. (laughs) I got to participate as a guest lecturer at your Shakespeare in the Hebrew Bible course and now the podcast. So thank you so much. It's definitely a pleasure for me. So Shakespeare's Hamlet, it is the story of a Danish prince who is charged to seek revenge by the ghost of his murdered father. I hardly need to give a backstory here, but I'll give a bit of context in that the play was first performed sometime in 1600 or 1601, though the origins can go back further, especially to the legend of Amleth, which are included in this grim Icelandic sagas compiled by Saxo Grammaticus in the late 12th century. And although there are many parallels between Saxo and Shakespeare's Hamlet stories, including a widowed queen's hasty marriage to her son's uncle, Hamlet's feigning madness and rashly killing a hidden spy, interestingly, Saxo's history of Hamlet, which was available in French in the 16th century and then translated, doesn't have a ghost in it at all. In fact, scholars largely agree that although the Amleth story would have been a source text for Shakespeare, the ghost first materializes in an earlier version of the Hamlet play that scholars have dubbed the Ur-Hamlet. Now, although the text of this play no longer exists, there are records in the 1580s, in the late 1580s, referencing a play by the name of Hamlet that had a ghost in it that would shriek and cry for revenge. And as Stephen Greenblatt argues in his fascinating study, Hamlet and Purgatory, ghosts were everywhere in Shakespeare's period in the 16th century, in the literature and particularly in the beliefs and practices and theological fears surrounding what happens after death. So I hope to focus our conversation about the relationship between the living and the dead, but particularly the reception of ghosts. So Ghosts occupy a very important place in Shakespeare's England, and when the ghost first appears in Shakespeare's play, it would have made Shakespeare's Protestant 16th century audience very uncomfortable. Protestants didn't necessarily believe in ghosts. Ghosts belonged in the realm of purgatory. Purgatory was the doctrinal Catholic belief that after death, the soul would be brought into a state of purgatory to be cleansed of its sins before potentially moving on toward heaven. But this ghost appears on the stage. So I'd like to start with that first appearance. It begins with Hamlet's friend Horatio hearing a report of the ghost of Hamlet's father, the dead king, recently dead king, coming back and walking near the battlements, near the castle in the evenings. 
In the most high and palmy state of Rome, a little ere the mightiest Julius fell, the graves stood tenantless, and the sheeted dead did squeak and gibber in the Roman streets. And even the like precurse of feared events, as harbingers preceding still the fates, and prologue to the omen coming on, have heaven and earth together demonstrated unto our climateurs and countrymen. Soft. Behold, lo where it comes again. I'll cross it, though it blast me. Stay, illusion, if thou hast any sound or use of voice. Speak to me. If there be any good thing to be done that may to thee do ease and grace to me, speak to me. If thou art privy to thy country's fate, which happily for knowing may avoid, O oh, speak. Or if thou hast abhorred in thy life extorted treasure in the womb of earth, for which they say you spirits oft walk in death. Speak of it! Stay and speak! Stop it, Marcellus! Shall I strike at it with my partisan? Do if it will not stand! Tis here! Tis here! Is gone. So after looking at this representation of an encounter with a ghost in Shakespeare's play, I'm wondering what elements of Shakespeare's work here, this encounter with the dead, are somewhat consistent or maybe inconsistent with what you found in your research on encounters with the dead in rabbinic literature and then in medieval Jewish literature? Wow, it's so interesting because this passage has features of exactly what I found to be consistent with the literature that I researched, medieval Jewish Ashkenazi literature, particularly Sefer Hasidim, the book that you mentioned, the 13th century of Germano-Jewish origin, uh, produced by an elite group, but reflective of popular beliefs and practices. So it's interesting that Horatio, even though he hasn't seen the ghost, he assumes two things about it. He assumes that it's a very appearance is a bad omen. He calls it a precursor of fierce events, similar to catastrophes that the stars portend. The second thing is that he assumes that the dead, the, the ghost that has appeared, has left his grave to walk to appear. And this can this is consistent with what he says that the graves are tenantless. These features. Uh, are key characteristics of an ancient pre-Christian notion of what scholars have termed the dangerous dead. What do I mean by the dangerous dead? The dangerous dead were two groups of people. They were either the bad dead, these were men or less often women, who were evil during their lifetime, but they return after death not being able to rest. It also includes those who are seemingly innocent or, or uh, ordinary, but they died an abnormal death. Either they met a violent end or they died prematurely, and they too are unable to rest in peace. And both these groups, the bad dead and the sort of ordinary dangerous dead, return with evil intent. They cause harm to the living. They sometimes seek vengeance. And it's particularly in the Icelandic sagas which could have been an origin to Shakespeare's play, that we have multiple stories of these bad dead or dangerous dead who come back bodily to harm the living. And there's accounts of actual fighting that occurs. And the only way to stop the appearance of the ghosts is to dismember the corpses or or decapitate them. And that's the only thing that will put them to rest. So the appearance of the dead became an instant instinctive reaction of fear. Even at a later point in history when uh, the tales of the returning dead were in a sort of standardized form, the very first thing that a, a dead, a deceased person would say to the living person he encounters is, do not be afraid. So this is something that carries itself through the centuries. We see it here in, in this play as well. Well, medieval Jews living at that time also inherited this fear of the dangerous dead, and they adopted similar practices to ward it off. We saw in the play that Horatio said, I'll cross it though it blasts me. This refers to a Christian, particularly Christian method of deflecting the harm caused by the dead or expected to be caused by the dead, in which he would invoke the cross. Another way to do it 
would be to pronounce an oath in the name of God. Clearly, Jews were not going to brandish the cross, right. but they would have pronounced an oath in the name of their God. And in fact, we have record that that was what they did. Sefer Hasidim actually offers practical advice to somebody who has a face-to-face -face encounter with one of these dead, who is believed to harm them. Sefer Hasidim advocates swearing an oath in the name of God, which is a very serious sin in the pietist canon, so it's not to be taken lightly, or to supplicate and pray before God that this ghost does not harm him. And just to demonstrate that this wasn't a theoretical construct, we have evidence from the 14th century that such graveside oaths were actually performed in a compilation of legal rulings and customs of Shalom of Neustadt in Austria. It records a text of an actual conjuration that formed part of a funeral ceremony. There had to have been a minyan, a quorum of males, and the deceased was sworn not to harm the living with his body, spirit, or soul. And he bound the deceased to stay in his grave until the resurrection of the dead. Otherwise, he would face sanctions until the end of days. And this is itself a not lone piece of evidence about a century and a half after Seyf Hasidim is redacted, also in Germany, the Maharil records a similar oath, again pronounced over a grave in which the deceased is bound not to wander in this world, not to harm or see any Jew or Jewess. And just to make sure that the dead understood the oath, it was to be recited in Hebrew and in the language that the deceased was familiar with when he was alive. Aside from these graveside oaths, I found record of burial practices that bespeak an underlying belief in the dangerous dead. The ethical will that Tzavah of Rabbi Yehuda Chassid of Rabbi Judah the Pious records advice to the grave diggers of the woman who was known to devour children during her lifetime. Oh. Perfect example of a female version of the dangerous dead in the form of the bad dead. And they, it says that if during the time of her burial she is found with her mouth open, it's biadua, it's certain that she will continue her practice of devouring children for one year after her death. So the grave digger is supposed to stuff up her mouth with dirt so she cannot continue. And this was sort of the Jewish version of what in pagan times they would dismember the corpse or decapitate it to prevent it from causing more harm after death because Jewish law does not allow any mutilation of the corpse. Mm -hmm. So this was a way to sort of stop her marauding and her evil actions in a legally sanctioned way. We also have another um, record, this time from Sefer Hasidim, when it records if there's a plague in a city, which has contemporary resonance, oh, the common yeah. practice was to exhume the bodies in the cemetery to see if any impropriety in burial had occurred. What does this mean? It means maybe the shrouds had disintegrated or some of the limbs or members were not properly placed. Why? Because if there's any impropriety in burial, and here we're, we're branching off not from the bad dead, but sort of the ordinary dead, if some kind of injustice occurred in burial, this dead person could come back and cause harm to the city, and that he could be the cause of the plague. So they would exhume the body, examine the corpse, and make any necessary adjustments or rectifications in order to bring an end to the plague. And one final example, in the Sefer Leked Yosher of Joseph ben Moses of the late 14th to early 15th century, so it's already uh, a little bit beyond the period of Sefer Hasidim, there's a custom in Wiener Neustadt, again in Austria, that although the rest of the dead in the town were buried in a coffin with the bottom plank missing, women who died in childbirth would be buried in whole coffins. Now, although there's no record, there's no specific cause that's given as to why this practice was, was uh, executed in this fashion or ordered to be executed, 
it's not impossible to suggest that a belief, a lingering belief in the dangerous dead was at cause because a woman who died in childbirth falls in the category of the dangerous dead. She died prematurely. She had a, an, an improper death, untimely death, and she could come back to cause harm to the living. So it was very common when you're dealing with dangerous dead to bind them in their coffins or to completely close the coffin so that the corporeal return of the dead would be inhibited. She would not be able to come back and harm. Now, you might say that this belief, these practices in the dangerous dead are part of the medieval Jewish heritage, right? Medieval Jews inherited an entire tradition of culture, of learning, of religion from what we call the period of the rabbis, the period that embraces the Mishnah and the Talmud, which is roughly very broad strokes, second century BCE to 500 CE. But upon conducting a survey of rabbinic literature on this matter, we find that the dead that do return bodily to the living in the Talmud serve a totally different purpose. And they there's a, a completely different reaction elicited by the living upon their appearance. For example, the Talmud lists more than a dozen incidents in which there is the bodily return of the, of the dead. Most often it's holy persons, people like Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, Reb Judah Hanasi, the um, prince, Reb Judah the prince, the redactor of the Mishnah. And in these cases, they come back to help or to assume their ordinary places in their familiar abodes of the living. For example, one case in the beginning of the Tractate Brachot, Elijah the prophet appears to one of the rabbinic sages named Rabbi Yossi, and he instructs him in matter of halacha, Jewish law. And there are many other examples in which he appears to other sages like Rabbi Yossi. He comes to help them. He comes to inform them. He comes to debate with them. He even comes to protect one from harm. Similarly, Rabbi Danasi mentioned earlier in Ketubot 103a, comes back every Friday night, according to the Talmud, to sit at his usual place in the table, to sleep in his bed every Friday night, and even the maid in his household is not startled. So all these cases of holy persons don't elicit fear and their intent is beneficial, helpful, uh, etc. There are ordinary dead that do appear in the Talmud. For example, in Ketubot 103a, a man by the name of Ziiri is looking for some missing information about the whereabouts of money that he left with his landlord particularly a landlady, and he goes to the cemetery and inquires about it. And she dutifully responds and tells him where to find it. So in the cases of the ordinary dead, they have to be sought out in the cemetery, or it's actually called Chatzar Hamaves, which is sort of an interim place. And the living just come again to aid or inform the dead. And there was no mention of fear elicited by their appearance or communication with them. So basically, to sum up, in medieval Jewish times, the literature reflects a different reaction to the dead, similar to the one we find in Shakespeare. That is fascinating. And there's so much to unpack there. I guess my first question is a matter of genre. Just to be clear, the invocation of the ghost appears for us in dramatic literature. Shakespeare's audience would have recognized that they are watching a piece of fiction, they're watching a play, but the accounts of that you're describing recorded are not in dramatic fictional works. These are recorded in actual halachic Jewish law guidebooks, right? This is intended for actual daily use. I don't know if the, the guidebooks were intended for daily use, Practical. Scholarly <laughs> elite would be reading the legal literature, but it was to be implemented by the elite in daily practice. And I like to use more when we're speaking about popular practice and popular uh, mentality. Sefer Hasidim is more reflective of that because he's speaking to a broad audience and he's recording everyday incidents. Masa Shahaya. It's a fascinating amalgam 
of stories and incidents that really can be mined to reflect popular ideas, sentiments, and practices. To pick up on the idea of popular sentiments and ideas and practices, Stephen Greenblatt does a really good job of examining in his book, too, that ghost stories were popular. They were being written in the 16th century. Uh, It wouldn't have been considered necessarily tabloid content. There was really, to a certain degree, a certain amount of sightings and records of these encounters. And if Shakespeare, even though we're dealing with a work of art and representation, he very much has is bringing to the stage the cultural consciousness of his time. So these ideas are reflected. I mean, I'm particularly taken about the dead, helpful landlady who <laughs> aids, you know, beyond the grave, her tenant. And it reminds me of the moment where Horatio first sees the ghost and he asks it to speak. And one of the things he says, you know, if there is any good thing to be done that may do the ease and grace, tell me what to do. If there is any, uh, any art privy to the country's fate, if you know of something that's going to happen, tell us what it is. And then the third thing he says is, or if thou hast abhorred in thy life extorted treasure in the womb of earth, if you have some buried treasure somewhere for which they say you spirits off the work, tell me where it is. <laughs> and so there is this idea that he gives him almost like a multiple choice quiz, like which kind of dead are you? Are you here to make a request for me to help you? Are you here to give us some information kind of in the aiding way, maybe not halachic Jewish practice advice like you saw in some of the other encounters, but, you know, some buried treasure that's kind of fascinating. So I'm, I'm actually wondering if now, if King Hamlet appeared as dangerous dead here, I mean, he shows up in this first scene, wearing his armor. He is attired for battle. I feel that would signal and perhaps reinforce the fear that he is encountered with. So that's it's actually very interesting. Firstly, the fact that he comes back to his own castle is very typical for the dangerous dead. They usually return to their familiar habitation where they were on earth. Uh, for example, there's a ghost tale that's recorded in Sefer Hasidim, which actually is claimed to be of a non-Jew. So we have clear evidence that the Judah the Pious got some of his stories directly from non-Jewish sources. And it talks about a Lord who's um, returning very, uh, very soon after his death. And he's wandering, I mean, it's implicit in the tale, it's not stated explicitly, he's wandering on his former domain. So that's very typical of a dangerous dead story. Also, coming in battle guard harks back to another formed narrative of the dangerous dead called Heliquin's Hunt, which was, goes back in pre-Christian times, speaking about the army of the dead that walked the earth. So coming in battle guard was quite typical of a dangerous death story. So fascinating. And the other thing that you mentioned in terms of the fear or the the development, I guess, later development of the fear of the dead being distinctive to medieval Jewish writings versus in the rabbinic Talmudic literature centuries later, I was discussing this with my students recently, and you mentioned the story of Elijah coming back and having encounters recorded in the Talmud. And someone said, you know, I never thought about the Seder being a ghost encounter. But she said, you know, we never thought that you go during the Seder and you open the door for Elijah to come in and you send the kids to do it. Like there is no anticipation of fear in that encounter ever. But you're saying, I guess, that it, as you argue, that this was um, seeped into or this was appropriated, can we say, in some way from the kind of Catholic material dead culture, or is this more pagan? So the dangerous dead was pre-Christian. Christianity, upon encountering it, Christianized it. They adapted Mm -hmm. it for for use in the sense that the dangerous dead now became the sinful dead. Instead of dying an abnormal death or an untimely death or a violent death, it refers to the dead who were marred by sin. Mm-hmm. And they would return, and often they would return to the locus of their sin, which is mm-hmm. reflective of returning to the familiar abode of the living. And the dangerous dead, now they return to the locus of sin, 
And both of them require the intervention of the living to put the dead to rest. In the case of the dangerous dead, as I mentioned, they had to sometimes decapitate the corpse or dismember it or sometimes cremate it. In Christianity, the sinful dead had to be helped by the living by doing whatever the Catholic Church mandated be done for the dead. Prayers, alms, uh, good works. These were things, sometimes penance for them, things that would help them achieve atonement so that they wouldn't be suffering. And a lot of the violence that the dangerous dead carried became transmuted in Christian tales onto the dead themselves. They would be suffering specific tailor-made punishments based on their sins that inflicted violence upon them. For example, you talk, talk, we talked about the knights a minute ago. Knights were in church, in the church eyes, were very were enemies of the church many times as they murdered and they plundered and they stole. They often took from monasteries and holy places. And many of the exemplar tales tell about monks, uh, I'm sorry, about knights after death who appear walking on earth with the spurs of their set of their on their feet, but made of burning fire or beat or uh, cutting into their souls and other ones carrying certain tools of their trade being the sources of their punishment, he, uh, extraordinarily heavy oversize that they're forced to carry or they're, or they're made of fire so that they burn them continuously so that the, the danger and the violence is transmuted onto the sinners themselves. So maybe to dive a little bit deeper into the theological underpinnings of Hamlet, Shakespeare was writing this play at a time when revenge tragedies were extremely popular on the English stage, particularly uh, reinventions and reworkings based on works of Seneca, who was a Latin playwright who had written these very gory revenge tales and a lot of logistics, right? Once one party is wronged, the rest of the drama and the conflict comes from kind of coordinating the execution of the revenge. And Shakespeare's working with that element as a dramatic inheritance, but there's something very unique in this play and that this play doesn't really work. The conflict in the play is missing without acknowledgement of the fact that Hamlet is a religious being. He believes in a soul. And therefore, because he has this awareness or at very minimum a concern of what happens to the soul after death, the appearance of a ghost who says to him, seek revenge, commit murder, is something that rightfully gives pause. Because if he does carry that out, what will happen to his soul in the next world for that crime? So a lot of scholars have said that this is a play where the conflict, yes, is about justice and enacting revenge. But really the conflict comes from the fact that Hamlet is a Protestant Figure. He studies at Rittenberg, which would have been the site of the Protestant Reformation, and his one generation above him, his father, represents a Catholic worldview. He comes straight from purgatory, and in his own words, this is what the ghost tells us about that purgatory experience. I am thy father's spirit, doomed for a certain term to walk the night for the day confined to fast in fires till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away. But that I am forbid to tell the secrets of my prison house, I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul, freeze thy young blood, make thy two eyes like stars start from their spheres, thy knotted and combined locks to part, and each particular hair to stand on end like quills upon the fretful porcupine. But this eternal place must not be to ears of flesh and blood. List, Hamlet, list, oh, list, if thou didst ever thy dear father love. Oh, God! Revenge his foul and most unnatural murder. So here, to a degree, 
Shakespeare's ghost gives us what would be perhaps a, quote, first-hand account of purgatory, a fictional first-hand account of purgatory, which would have been really unnerving to a Protestant audience for several reasons. So scholars for generations have really picked over this passage and really this play, trying to pull out from it what were Shakespeare's personal beliefs. Was he still subscribing to the Roman Catholic Church, which Henry VIII's reign would have begun with? Or did he subscribe to the Reformed Catholic Church of Queen Elizabeth and Protestantism? And really, it's not a question that I think we've ever been able to fully answer or to, to know what a particular individual artist personally believes might not get us very far. But one of the Protestant critiques of the doctrine of purgatory in the kind of spirit of the Protestant Reformation was that there was no scriptural basis for purgatory. My question is, within the Jewish understanding of death and the afterlife, do we have a Jewish concept of purgatory? If so, what, where can we locate that? Is there a biblical source for kind of post-mortem punishment? What do we really know about the unknown? Okay, well, very loaded question. So it's interesting because to just backtrack a second to the quote that we just heard, it contains multi-layered associations or references, I should say. It has the Catholic belief in purgatory because it speaks about a time-bound purgation, doomed for a certain term. And he also speaks of its purgative or cleansing function till the foul crimes in my days of nature are burnt or purged away. It also, though, has uh, elements of an early medieval belief in the eternality of punishment, which meant in the early, early medieval period, before purgatory was disseminated widely to churchmen and to the masses, which occurred in the high medieval period, early medieval people believed that all Christians would be doomed to eternal punishment, except for the very righteous, of course. And there was really little hope of them for redemption. And we see a reference to this in the passage just read when Hamlet refers to, or Hamlet's ghost, I should say, refers to eternal blazon. So the fire is, is, that's purging him is also eternally burning. There's a third layer here when he, he speaks of doomed to walk the earth. Now that is a reference to a pre-Christian belief in the wandering dead on earth, right? Something that we just talked about before, again, harping back to Helicon's hunt, that there was an army of the damned that was all outfitted in uh, as warriors roaming the earth ceaselessly. And it's interesting that he Shakespeare conflates all these elements in this one passage, showing you, and I guess it's not surprising because medievals often conflated uh, contradictory beliefs, not really aware of the fine-tuned points of Catholic doctrine. To get to your question about Jewish tradition, post-mortem punishment has both functions in rabbinic literature. And again, this is the period, the classical period of rabbinic literature, in which it's both punitive, that means it serves as to punish the sinner without any cleansing effect, and purgative. It will actually cleanse the sinner of his sin, and it's time-bound, but it really depends on the type of sin committed. The, there is a biblical source for the cleansing function of Gehenna fire. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9, Gehenna is spoken about there in, a, in, a, in the context of the far future. On that day by Yom Hahu, there will be a cleansing process, and the rabbis understood this to take place in Gehenna. And sinners will be purified as one purifies silver. This is the quote from Zechariah, and refined as one refines gold. After sinners are purified of their sin, they accede to a place of reward. Those who sin more seriously will have only a punitive role, a punitive punishment after death, with the most grave sinners, those who have severe ideological deviations or commit very heinous crimes, they will suffer eternally without any atoning effect. 
as far as scriptural sources for Gehenna itself, it's based on an actual location in Jerusalem where child immolation took place. And the prophet Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu, in chapter 19, verse 6, extends, has prophesied regarding this valley of Gehinom, that it will become a place of punishment of the wicked at the end of days. The whole days are coming, he warns the people, when this place will no longer be called Gehinom, the, meaning the valley of Gehinom, but the valley of killing. And it's based on this pasuk, this verse, the rabbis conceived of Gehenna as a place for the punishment of the wicked, not just after the resurrection at the end of time, like the verse in Jeremiah um, assumes or says explicitly, but they also perceived it as a place of punishment for the wicked immediately after death. And according to rabbinic tradition, Gehenna was a location that was subterranean, it was under the ground. The Talmud discusses various possibilities of openings in the earth that could serve as openings toward to this subterranean Gehenna. For example, one says it was actually this valley of Ben-Hinom. Another one says it was in the floor of the seabed. And another one says in the desert. There's a fascinating story about a Jewish traveler being led by a merchant through the desert. And he's taken to the spot where he can hear the wicked dead of Korach's assembly. He was somebody who uh, led a rebellion against Moses uh, when the Jews were in the, in the wilderness, and he hears them crying out from the pit of Gehenna under the earth. So the rabbis uh, conceived it as this place of punishment, and the primary means of punishment was through fire. It was fire that uh, punished, and it was fire that cleansed. In the medieval period, Jews accepted rabbinic tradition that Gehenna served as a punishment for the wicked after death. But there is evidence of another belief, and this harks back to what I said in the beginning about Shakespeare's ghost, in a pre-Christian belief that the sinful dead also walk the earth after death. And in fact, Sefer Hasidim mentions several tales of ghosts who walk posthumously on the earth. For example, I made mention of one earlier. It was a Lord who had died recently. He was encountered by his uh, servant walking around on a certain plot of land. And he petitions the, the living person to please uh, restore the property that he had stolen. He had stolen some kind of patrimony. The Hebrew version is Nahala, and he can't find any rest. And in this story, it's interesting, the living person says, well, I'm not so sure the townspeople will believe me that I saw you. So he said, well, tell all the townspeople to come to a certain location tomorrow and I'll appear there. And he gathers the townspeople and he appears in a certain tree and, and they immediately go to his grave and they find that he, his corpse is missing, which is a hark back to the dangerous dead, the tenantless graves. And he implores the living to return this land that he has stolen. And we're left, we don't really know what happens in the end if they do it, but that's just one story. And then there's another story that's told as sort of a pair of tales. Another man appears several years after he has died, and he's complaining about being very tired, carrying a heavy load, having to walk ceaselessly on earth. And again, this harps back to those heliquin hunt narratives where the dead have to assume heavy, heavy loads, have to walk ceaselessly as a purgation for their sin. These are not just isolated tales that reveal these elements of the pre-Christian wandering dead. But what I argue is that if you examine what Elazar of Worms calls the Midrashic source, for the mourner's Kaddish, which is a practice that was instituted into the liturgy of medieval Ashkenaz synagogue or prayer, the basis for this practice, which uh, arises during this period and has remained with us until today, is actually based on a tale that has many important elements of the wandering dead, of the dangerous, the sinful wandering dead. It's a 
It's somebody who appears bodily to the living, who wanders, who's suffering great pain, great torture, and, and not just the broad strokes of the tale mirror what we have of the sinful dead returning, asking for some prayer to be said on their behalf so that they can abrogate their punishment. But even there are certain fine details that you find in the exemplar tales and in these dangerous dead tales, sinful dead tales, I should say, that are appropriated, that this tale uh, mirrors. So it becomes a bedrock of Ashkenazi Jewish practice for the dead, and it has these elements, although I'm sure that medieval Jews were unaware of it, of the dangerous dead that became adapted to become the sinful dead, that now is appropriated by medieval Jewry. Following up on this account that you've just given us within Jewish tradition, after the ghost of Hamlet shares what he can of his experience in purgatory, he also relates to Hamlet the circumstances of his death. Thus was I sleeping by a brother's hand of life, of crown, of queen at once dispatched, cut off even in the blossoms of my sin, unhouseled, disappointed, and unyield, no reckoning made, but sent to my account with all my imperfections on my head. Fratricide is certainly horrible, 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 but scholars have suggested here that perhaps the ghost isn't referring to the circumstances of his actual death, but rather the most immediate antecedent in that particular monologue, that what's horrible, horrible, horrible is death without ritual preparation, that's being dispatched into the next world with your imperfections on your head. No last rites, no confession, no absolution in the blossoms of sin. So my question, I guess, is, is this fear of dying or this anxiety about dying full of sin or with your sins and imperfections on your head present in the Jewish sources and literature that you've studied? Definitely. It's a prominent feature. And I think the best way to illustrate this would be a pair of stories. Um, the Talmud tells a story of a sage, and this is recorded in Moed Cotton 20, 28a, in which another sage sees him dying, and he says, please come back to me after death and tell me what it feels like if there's any pain experienced during death. A big ask. <laughs> yeah. And the sage comes back and tells him that he had very minimal, if any pain at all. In fact, the experience of death felt like taking a hair out of milk. Even so, he says, I would not like to return to the world of the living in the sense of living again, because the fear of dying is so great. And yet we have a similar story, almost identical story in Sefer Hasidim in the medieval period, in which two friends make a pact or promise with each other that whoever dies first will come back and appear to the other one. But the question is not, how does it feel to die? The question is, how is it in that world? Hmm. And that's the most salient point, because what animated the fear of, the, of, you know, of dying was not the experience of death, but the fate of the soul in the afterlife. And the passage in Sefer Hasidim, after it mentions the story, starts to go into particulars. How does this happen? What means does the dead appear to the living? Sort of grounding it in fact. And we have several other tales that fill Sefer Hasidim that speak about the dead coming back to the living and telling and describing, sometimes in vivid detail, how it is in that world. If they're in Gehenna, if they're being punished, they talk about the punishment that's visited upon them. And I'll give you one example. There's a story about a, a certain individual, a woman, who comes back in a dream to a certain living individual. And in this town, we are told that it was customary not to do any work for women on Friday, aside from preparation for the 
for the Sabbath. And this woman comes back to the living, telling this living person that her hands and eyes are being burned with husks of flax because she, in violation of this practice, would spin on, on Friday afternoon and not prepare for the Sabbath. Mm. So she's telling how her punishment was, you know, Mida Kenega Mida was tit for tat. Her mm -hmm. sin became the instrument of her punishment in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. And this information is recorded to the living. We have other tales on the flip side of people coming back, describing the reward that they're experiencing in the afterlife and the reason why they're experiencing it. What was the good practice that merited them this kind of reward? So this was something that was part of the general culture of these tales that were told in medieval times, often uh, by the 13th century, preached by the mendicants in the thousands, and many of them spoke of the dead, uh, their experience in the afterlife. Now, this is not really found in rabbinic literature. What do I mean, really? There are stories of the dead and the afterlife, but there's no mention there of the status of the afterlife. That's not the rabbi's concern. It seems that they have other fears. They have fears, as we mentioned, of the moment of death. There's also fears of what's called the after death, the fate that the body encounters through rotting of the flesh, through the eating of the corpse by maggots and worms. This was something that uh, perturbed people in rabbinic times, also a fear of lack of burial. And when it comes to reward and punishment, Although, of course, as we mentioned, the rabbis speak of punishment immediately after death, but they also speak about punishment in the world to come, that is the post-resurrection period. And if you just do a sampling of the amount of space that these topics take up in rabbinic literature, you'll see where the weight of the evidence falls in terms of what preoccupied the rabbis. There is an entire Mishnaic chapter and long sections of the Talmud that deal with who merits and who doesn't merit the world to come, the famous Parachelet, versus scattered dicta and pronouncements that deal with Gehenna and Gan Eden, the, the places of reward and punishment and reward in the afterlife that are just scattered throughout the Talmud. Plus, the rabbis speak in vague terms like Olam Haba, the world to come, la silavo, the distant future, in which in context, it's difficult to ascertain which period is meant. Are we talking about immediately after death? Are we talking about the post-resurrection post period? Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a generalization of the topic of reward and punishment after death in rabbinic literature. The shift of the evidence is more on the post-resurrection period. Plus, the ambiguities that obtain in these sort of stock phrases makes it clear that the rabbis weren't obsessed or weren't very focused on, might be a better word, the period immediately after death. This shifts dramatically when we come to the medieval period. Mm -hmm. in the medieval period, medieval Jews are, I think maybe obsessed might be a good word here, or fascinated, <laughs> perhaps less colloquial, fascinated with the period immediately after death, such that we find the opposite occurring. Whereas in rabbinic literature, we had terms that were deliberately ambiguous. Mm -hmm. We find that medieval Ashkenazi halachic figures, people of renowned fame as the Tosafists, who analyzed and commented in depth on the Talmud, they understand clear passages in the Talmud that speak of the post-resurrection period as instinctively triggering in their minds the punishment immediately after death. Mm -hmm. So we see how the period immediately after death has become an instinctive association in terms of where posthumous recompense takes place. And if you want to examine Sefer Hasidim, you'll find a palpable dread of post-mortem punishment to a very extreme degree. And this is, in fact, what animates Hamlet's ghost of when he's scared to die uh, without ritual preparation. 
meaning he's scared of the punishment after death. He, he has told us in an earlier passage to tell the secrets of my prison houses, to tell a tale whose lightest word would harrow up Hamlet's soul and freeze his young blood. Where is this terror of the afterlife coming from? So we find this in Sefer Hasidim as well. Mm-hmm. Sefer Hasidim has a doctrine that's novel and exacting of penance. Penance was the medieval understanding of physical, corporeal punishments, fasts. Uh, we'll talk about different practices that they had, a certain regimen or prescription for sin in which the sin was expiated in order to achieve atonement. And Sefer Hasidim has this regimen, this uh, program in which uh, fasting, excessive fasting, flogging and lashes, bathing in ice in the winter or sitting among vermin and bees in the summer, voluntary exile are all recommended as expiation for sin. Why? because it would forestall this ominous fate that was waiting a sinner in the afterlife. And we have penitential tracts that were extant in manuscript of specific sins, sort of in a systematic way, and their prescriptive penances that would accompany them. And these penances would vary based on the sin in terms of which elements of the ones that I mentioned would, be, would have to be performed, the duration of their performance, and how many times they were to be performed, and for how long a period. And they would either go to a, a chacham, or sometimes we have actually responses in which they ask, what is the penance for my sin? And these were very grave sins, murder, adultery, theft, etc. Mm-hmm. How do I atone? How do I uh, do expiation for this sin? And sometimes it's to be done publicly in order to make humiliation as part of the expiatory process. And aside from these penitential documents, manuscripts, we also have sort of mainstream halachic Jewish legal evidence from Germany in the 13th through the 16th century, in which we have record of medieval Jews who turn to their communal leaders and ask them, how do I do penance? or such and such sin, and they are told what their uh, performance is supposed to be. The reason why medieval Jewish men and women sought these very harsh penances in this ascetic regimen was because they dreaded the punishments in the afterlife. And how did they know about these punishments? They knew about it. We have evidence that there was an anonymous treatise called Perikehenim, that was circulating in, or maybe it was a product of medieval Ashkenaz, that described in very graphic and hyperbolic terms the types of punishments that would await sinners in the afterlife. Things like rivers of fire, pitch, and boiling sulfur, alternating torments of heat and cold, a landscape of fantastic dimension, angels of destruction numbering in the thousands, some of them tossing sinful souls into a gaping hellmouth. These were all images and uh, narratives that were familiar and known in the medieval period in other types of visionary literature. In exempla, these were told and retold uh, amongst the masses. So they would have been circulating in the medieval period and Jews, as we see, absorbed them as much as medieval Christians did. And it was this fear of dying in the blossoms of sin that I think Hamlet's ghost is referring to when he says, horrible, horrible, horrible. We have that in Shakespeare, too. Hamlet's less concerned about the physical pain of dying and extremely concerned with the what happens after. I mean, this is the reason why he laments that... Uh, the canon has fixed itself against self-slaughter, that that suicide itself is against his uh, religious belief and then what would happen to his soul. But the idea of dying in the blossoms of sin, as Hamlet's father does, comes back to us later in the play when Claudius is praying and he feels the weight and the guilt of the murder that he's committed. Now, the dramatic irony of that moment is that the audience hears Claudius confessing his sin, 
Hamlet is off in the corner. This would be the time right now, Pat, it's time to do it. Um, and he raises his dagger and he's about to use this moment to kill Claudius when he recognizes that this would not be revenge at all. Because if Claudius dies in the act of prayer and successfully achieves repentance, it is a free pass. So he refuses to complete that revenge, that act of revenge in that moment. I want to just take us maybe just into one more aspect of this play, if we have a few more minutes. So the ghost charges Hamlet, not just to be revenged, but at the end he says, I do, I do, Hamlet, remember me. And this is a totally different, seemingly easier uh, request to fulfill. And the ghost directive, remember me, and Hamlet's response, does he actually fulfill that request, has fascinated critics across you know, generations. Arguably, Hamlet fails. Certainly, he completes the act of revenge in killing Claudius, but he doesn't successfully remember his father because in the act of dying, no one can continue that legacy. Hamlet can't pass on the memory of his father in his own death. So I guess both in rabbinic literature in Ashkenazi culture, um, what would be the relationship between what the living owe the dead in Jewish culture? Okay, also a very loaded question. <laughs> um, as far as the rabbinic period, again, I turn to the Talmud, there is a very limited mention of the dead praying for the living. We have a mention in Tanit 16a about the custom during, on fast days the Jews would go to cemeteries and pray there, asking for the dead to pray on their behalf because fast, uh, fast days were initiated for a certain crisis at the time. And it was understood that the prayers of the dead would be beneficial and could perhaps uh, revoke or bring an end to this uh, crisis. Uh, most mention of the dead praying for the living in the Talmud or in rabbinic literature in general, is in reference to the holy dead, meaning the matriarchs and patriarchs of the Jewish religion who would pray for the, for the collective body of the, of the Jewish people, of, of Knesset Yisrael. And we have, I guess, the most famous example in the Midrash, in Eich Araba, Petechta 24, in which each one of the patriarchs and matriarchs beseeches God to have mercy on his children and take them out of exile. And it's only the archetypal mother of the Jews in exile, Rachel or Rachel, who succeeds in sort of convincing God that her merits are the greatest and and her merit, the Jewish people, are promised to return to their land. This is very interesting because it shows you that prayer for the dead was most often associated with holy figures. Um, as far as the living praying for the dead, again, we have a few isolated examples in the Talmud. And again, it's great figures who pray for deceased loved ones here. For example, King David, according to the Talmud and Sota 10b, prays for the soul of his renegade son, Absalom, so that he should come out of Gehenna. Uh, Rabbi Yochanan, uh, Tanaitic sage, it prays for his apostate master, Elisha ben Avuya, that he should come out of Gehenna. And in fact, there's smoke that uh, comes out of his grave as a sign that he is currently in Gehenna. So these figures are, these are isolated examples, and rabbinic literature does not promote the practice of prayer for the dead, and it certainly doesn't record any contemporaneous practice. When we move on to the Gaonic period, which is post-Talmudic, pre-medieval, pre-medieval Ashkenaz, roughly 600 to 1100 CE, we find divided opinion in terms of aiding the dead or do dead need atonement? And when I mean divided, it's really divided. We have some opinions who say we do not aid the dead at all. There are other opinions who say it's permissible to aid the dead, but not sure if it will be beneficial, if it will be efficacious. And then there are others who say, yes, it is allowed and it is beneficial and efficacious, but only by the very righteous, citing these examples in the Talmud or the extremely meritorious. When we come to the medieval period, again, we see a dramatic change. 
Sefer Hasidim records that the dead pray for the living on a regular basis, not just on moments during moments of crisis when called upon, like in Talmudic times on fast days, but on a regular basis ordinarily, so much so that the living owe a great debt to the dead. And again, as far as the dead praying for the living, it is not the rabbinic uh, model of the extremely righteous, the patriarchs and matriarchs, they make no appearance in Sefer Hasidim, rather it's the ordinary dead who are praying for the living. And because they pray regularly, the living owe a great debt to the dead, so much so that he records a, a tale in which there was a certain members of a certain town who wanted to relocate, and if they would move, they would they would be far from this local cemetery. And one of the dead people buried in the cemetery appears to in a dream to the living of that community, telling them, "Don't move away; harm will befall you." Hmm. They ignore the warning. They relocate, and the entire community is wiped out. Wow. So the obligation is taken very seriously. Um, Ashkenazi Jews felt the need to remember their dead in direct response to what Hamlet Spost says, remember me, and develops in medieval Ashkenaz the practice of Yisker, the Yisker ceremony. Yisker ceremony was a way to memorialize the dead. It was instituted in memory of the crusade martyrs whose names would be read aloud in the synagogue and they were recorded in the Memorbuch, which literally means book of memory. They would be read aloud on the Shabbat before Shavuot, which was very close to the anniversary of the Rhineland massacres. There is Gaonic antecedents to the practice of remembering or saying aloud the names of prominent deceased uh, during that period. However, the actual text of the Yisker bears resemblance to contemporaneous diptychs that were also a means of recording and saying aloud the names of martyrs. In about the second half of the 12th century, the Yisker and the names that were pronounced expanded to include not just martyrs, but other important figures in the Jewish communities of Ashkenaz not just remembering the dead, but aiding the dead after death also sort of got reified into practice. We find evidence in terms of pledging charity for the dead in medieval Ashkenaz, was first documented in the Machzor Vitri, which is an 11th century German Jewish customary, that the practice was on Yom Kippur, to pledge charity for the dead because they conceived of this day of atonement as atonement, not just for the living, but for the souls of the dead as well. And an addendum, a 12th century addendum to that same work mentions the practice of orphan sons reciting the prayer of Baruch or Kaddish, which shows you that it was still in its fluid stage mm -hmm. at the conclusion of the Sabbath for the betterment of their parents' souls. By the time of the Orzarua of Isaac of Vienna in the 13th century, the orphan's prayer was formalized as the Kaddish, and it was said in all the synagogues of Bohemia and the Rhineland after Ein Kelokenu. Now, just to give you a little history, Kaddish was a prayer that predated Ashkenaz, but it was always associated with Torah reading or Torah study. Mm -hmm. And it was part of the liturgy that Ashkenaz inherited. It assumed a secondary function in medieval Ashkenaz as an intercessory prayer for the dead, specifically the mourner's Kaddish. And this played an important role in remembering and aiding the dead, which was the most common motif of the returning stories of the dead that were circulating at, the, at that time, that the dead need the help of the living in terms of prayer and charity. And you could see how this emphasis on the afterlife and the importance that medieval Jews viewed the fate of the soul in the afterlife was very real and present for them, so much so that they generated a practice in which to objectify 
a practice in which they could actually aid their parents' souls or the souls of their loved ones in the afterlife, which was not a part of Talmudic or Gaonic uh, the periods. It was specifically medieval. And this is what Hamlet's ghost refers to when he says, remember me, remember me. A form of remembering is not just mentioning the dead, but trying to aid them. This is one of the most common motifs in the example literature of the period. When the return of the dead was mentioned, it was to seek the aid of the dead. How can we help the souls in the afterlife? So this was very much paramount in medieval Jews' minds. And it could be that over the course of time, it wasn't just an outgrowth of fear of the afterlife, but it could have been an expression of love for one's deceased relative, a form of connection, and it becomes the link, the only way to remember the dead in our days. It's, it's ironic, in our days, what we have left, the residue of medieval times, are the Yisker and the Kaddish prayers, which is our link to our deceased loved ones. It seems like for the griever, the process of saying Kaddish, the process of being able to participate in the community and give um, charity um, and do good works, even that can kind of act as some kind of relief. Stephen Greenblatt actually, in the introduction to his book, Hamlet in Purgatory, shares a very personal story about his father passing away and how that experience um, brought him to his research on Hamlet and what that was like for him to say Kaddish for a year for his father, who it turns out he shares actually didn't believe that his son would say Kaddish for him and paid an organization to do it. And uh, Greenblatt says that he accepted that as a challenge, that he will actually, in fact, step up and and perform that right as the son. It's interesting to me. I've always thought of Judaism as a religion that's focused on life and not death, hence the L'chaim, which is like one of the most foundational kind of ubiquitous cultural associations with Judaism. But perhaps it's actually more, or maybe not more, but equally about memory. And I mean, you know, this is something that is written about widely, but one one text that maybe listeners would be interested in is historian Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi's book, Zahor, and he, you know, points out that the commandment, Zahor, to remember, comes up nearly 200 times throughout the Bible. And that God introduces himself throughout Tanakh, throughout the Bible, in connection to ancestors. He doesn't tell Moses to go to Egypt and announce that I am acting on behalf of the God of creation who, you know, made the heavens and the earth. He says, I am here to perform these miracles and wonders on behalf of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That memory is almost so ubiquitous in this connection between one generation and the next almost doesn't even feel like a connection of the dead because their, their legacy is so very much in the present. So I think I just want to say thank you so much. You've given me, and I'm sure all of our listeners, so much to think about. And wow, this conversation will not soon be forgotten. I guarantee you. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Twice Blessed, a project of the Yeshiva University Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought. This show is produced by Uri Westrich and Sam Gelman. Information about this episode, including the audio credits and reading recommendations, is available in the show notes. If this conversation left you feeling blessed, please subscribe to Twice Blessed on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And consider leaving a positive review, sharing it with friends, and following us on social media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.